0: A little different approach tonight that I would like us as we step into more of a topic versus a passage. If if there's a difference between preaching and teaching, I don't think I'll be so much preaching tonight. Um, I want us to look at a topic that has been dear on my heart over the years. If I were to give a title to it, it would be something like Leading a Jehovah Witness to Christ. If we have the PowerPoint, guys, thank you. How many of you have had opportunities to talk to Jehovah Witnesses over the years? Maybe your family members that are Jehovah Witnesses. Some of you. You know, what I I find as the the norm over the years is that a lot of Christians, when they see JWs coming to a neighborhood, they'll just close the door, or they don't want anything to do with them, or they'll kind of hide and, you know, just... Ignore them, but there's a great opportunity, um, for us in witnessing to, to Jada, Trevor Witnesses. There are a couple of goals. If I were to list my goals up front, what is it that I would like to accomplish with this? And this is just the beginning when Pastor gives me opportunity other Wednesdays down the road. I like to continue, um, this, this little series. Um, this is my goal as I look at it. I'm I'm not pretending to be a, a, um, uh, an expert on Tribal Witnesses, and yet by God's grace over the years, I've had many, many conversations um I would call them maybe debates where we would have um, and some of our members in various churches, having JWs visit them, not knowing what to say. Well, let's just have a, have a, a gracious meeting with them. And, and by God's grace, I've seen a couple come to know Christ and um, see them join our churches. Um, so just it's, it's, it's an opportunity to learn about not so much what they believe, but what we believe. Um, can, do we know how to defend our faith? And in that, it's also a form to maybe teach or maybe go over some theology together. And all in the meanwhile, my, my heart's real intent is, is to go to grow, that we just are witnesses, how we can share the gospel with, with um, people of Jesus Christ. Also, you know, to thank God for, as we look at His Word, like tonight when we talk about proving the triunity um, from the Old Testament, And why JWs are hung up on the triunity or what is called the Trinity, um, that the Word of God is so awesomely put together in its beauty and how it proves our theology and how we could, with boldness. If I could just take a couple moments to begin, how did I get involved in Jehovah's Witnesses? How did it all begin? When I was in seminary in 1981 to 84, we used to travel down on weekends. Lynn and I traveled to North Jersey, and I was youth pastor of a, of a church in Parsippany, Parsippany Baptist. And we, um, we would come down on a Friday night or Saturday morning, and the church family would have a sign-up list, and who was to get stuck with the Cromptons. Uh, they were very gracious, and, and the list was, um, was always uh, well filled up. But there was this one family um, that we would get to visit with, and they lived in... Um, Oh boy, near Bud Lake is. I'm escaping me right now. Um, but the Somers, and when we go to John's house, John talked about three subjects: biking, bicycling. Um, um, what was his other? Jehovah Witnesses was the, the other subject. i escaping me the other one. That, but anyway, it was it was an enjoyable conversation. But John was a warehouse of of information on what Jehovah Witnesses, and I never talked to Jehovah Witness. So now that's on hold. So, um, having that conversation with John. One well, of the youth group was this guy named Dave, um, ne- Dave Gentile, Mike, Mike Gentile that accepted Christ as his savior. And he had family, the Nelsons that were Jehovah Witnesses. And Mike, I led Mike to the Lord in the beginning, and he's growing, discipling him. But he was the kind of guy that always liked to tease me, get under my skin and say, I don't know, Dave. JWs have some pretty good information or some truth. I didn't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'm listening, I'm listening. And I mean, I'm in seminary. And I really, I'm embarrassed when I realize how little I knew. And so I said, well, listen, we'll just come to their home. Tell them we'll set up a meeting. We'll go to their home and we'll talk to them about Jesus Christ and, and hear their. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to bring John Silmer. I mean, this guy is a warehouse of, of knowledge. It's just like six. Sick, the dog's on him. So we get into their home. We're dressed pretty casually. They're in their three-piece suits in this beautiful home that I thought my, my ankles were going to sink into the carpet. I mean, and they have their, their boards all ready for us, the Trinity, and they have pieces of paper all marked up what we believe. And so we began the conversation, and to make matters worse, my skilled expert didn't say a word. He just froze on me. I kept looking to be like, you there? You're at the, let, let's call 911 something. So I went through the whole conversation, and I'm going back and forth. And, and I would have to say, um, not that I was out for debate, but if we were to score points, if that were debate, we were spanked. Um, so that just troubled me the whole week that I didn't defend the faith well. Um, and that, that bothered me. So I started researching to witnesses in between my studies, and I put together a letter, and we drove to the Nelson home, and being the brave soul I was, I went right up to his door and left it under his mat. Um, I, don't, I don't remember. I know we didn't, they weren't at home. We probably rung the doorbell. Um, but in the letter, and I still have a copy of that letter. I reviewed it this past week. And it was something to the effect, you know, Mr. Nelson, you said that if you're right, and I put in parentheses, and you're not... Um, that I will spend forever because in, in heaven because I'm trying trying hard, trying to do well. And I went on to explain, but if I'm right, and I put in parentheses, and I am, then you're going to spend forever separated from God in hell, and that's a scary prospect. And that's as good as I could do. So we went down the road. And I, by God's grace, learning out Jehovah's Witnesses, they started knocking on our doors. We lived in Lake Parsippany, started inviting them in, having conversations. They're sitting at our dining room table, and they would come back and starting to grow my understanding and heart for these people and this, this cult. All the meanwhile, we started a basketball program at Parsippany, and Dave Nelson, Jehovah's Witness, started coming to that basketball program on Monday nights. And we had two high schools that would come. They would The coach would bring their teams because you're not allowed to practice on grounds. And um, so Parsippany High School and Parsippany Troy Hills would come. And we would always have halftime devotions and just share the gospel. And Dave Nelson is listening every week. And I'm pretty much gearing just going right after him that he's there. And I could tell God's working in his heart. And he started to ask, hey, can we meet? So we started meeting and um, started going over some of his theology and what I was learning and the Word of God and just start. And after, after a, uh, months, um, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and um, baptized him at our church. And now to spin forward, um, I'm taking a position on Long Island, and Dave tells me, man, my dad, remember what you said to, to my dad? You made a statement that Greek teaches theology, and, and you know that they're wrong, and they're theology, so he's studying Greek. And I said, he's studying Greek? He said, yeah, because he really has questions about the Jehovah's Witness faith. And so now we're out on Long Island to make to finish the story. He um, Um, is getting married out in minnesota he met a girl in in the church in Presbyterian baptist and they asked me to be involved in the wedding out in minnesota so i fly out and he says by the way also dave my dad's accepted jesus christ as his savior and me being a man of great faith i said i don't believe it and uh so i fly out to minnesota mr nelson's sitting in his big lincoln continental that he rented he calls me over and I said, hi, Mr. Nelson, shake his hand, and he puts up the, the electric window, and now my hand's like this, and he's sitting in the driver's seat, and he says, what are you doing? And he says through the crack in the window, he says, now do you believe that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior? So just by God's grace, and you know, that, that God doesn't work, not, not us, but he wants us to be able to, to know how, how can we present, present the truth to those that are lost. Um, There are many, many issues that we could talk about, Jehovah's Witnesses. And if I could just take three more minutes or four more minutes, I want to talk about peripheral issues. Now, please understand, I never get into the peripheral issues with Jehovah's Witnesses because it's not the heart of the issue. You know what the heart of the issue is? What's the heart of the issue? Exactly. Who is Jesus Christ? Some of you will be with me, at in Philippi, as we stand there and as we're on those grounds. Who do men say that I am? That great question posed to, to, to Peter and the disciples, and he answered, There art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's really the heart of the issue. But it's good just to know about some of their background. Again, I don't, I don't think I've ever brought up all of this, this, this stuff to them. Um, but first, they've had a lot of false prophecies in their background where they made these predictions. For example, in 1914, in one of their magazines, The Time is at Hand, written in 1908, they predicted in 1914, and amazingly, beginning of World War One, but that, that the Battle of Armageddon would occur. Uh, so that really didn't happen. And then in 19... 19- 25 they predicted that there would be an earthly resurrection and that abraham isaac jacob and the faithful prophets would return well that didn't happen either so you have false prophecies in their background then there are some deadly errors you've heard about their their perhaps some of their beliefs between 31 1931 and 1952 they refused vaccinations so because of their organization said that vaccination is a direct violation of the everlasting covenant that god made then they changed that about vaccinations um from 1967 to 1980, they refused kidney and cornea transplants. They thought that was illegal. Um, they won't, they wouldn't have blood transfusions because they believe the Bible speaks against ingesting blood. So that's just some, some of their, their views. They don't celebrate Christmas. Um, but a bigger thing that I, I have a question is their honesty. Um, are they, are they honest? And then their, their translations, they'll say in their New World Translation, accurately translated from the Greek and the Hebrew. And that, and we'll get into it more later. Um, when we look at passages like John one one, as we talk about the deity of Christ in our next session, um, but that is a, a, a tremendous bogus misstatement. In fact, there's uh, Dr. Bruce Metzger um, and Dr. Machen, and there's another guy named Dr. Robert Countess that that say that their their doctrine has been intentionally been driven in how they have altered from the Greek and the Hebrew the text. So they they have and what I would tra- what I, when we get into John 1, 1, I'll say, what I learned in my eighth week of first-year Greek, in other words, kindergarten Greek, they mistranslate it purposely, which is a major, a major statement. So uh, again, we'll get into that, that a little bit later. Um, Jehovah Witnesses' view of the Bible, you need to, to just understand this. They will accept the King James Version. Um, they'll accept it, um, but they also say this in their literature, that Um, uh, each, Each Watchtower states that it adheres to the Bible as authority, but this is their practice. Not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself, but we see also that if anyone has the Scripture studies, set the Scripture studies aside and goes to the Bible alone the scripture studies being the Jehovah's Witness studies, and goes to the Bible alone. Although he has understood the Bible for 10 years, our experience is that he will be in two years in utter darkness. In other words, what they're trying to state is you need their studies and their studies to supplement the Bible. So marks of a cult are always going to be, two of the marks are always going to be minimize the person of Jesus Christ and have their own teachings and writing superior to the Bible. All right, so if we could kind of now just set that all aside come to really the heart of the matter is who is Christ and how do we defend who Christ is? Um, How do we explain who Christ is? Um, We've talked in church before about a a, a bishop of Alexandria named Arius. Athanasius was opposing him, Arian doctrine. And Arian believed that Jesus Christ, or he was teaching that Jesus Christ was not co-eternal with the Father and co-equal with the Father, that He was created, that He had a beginning point. That's Jehovah's Witness doctrine. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. So let me ask you this question with all of this background. How would you respond to a Jehovah's Witness that said they did not believe in the Trinity? How would What would you say to them? I'd like to hear your thoughts, um, that they did not believe in the triunity. But I'm going to make it a little bit harder. How would you use the Old Testament to prove that? Prove the Trinity, and I, I don't, I, I don't like the term Trinity because it almost makes it sound like there's three gods. I like the word tri-unity, tri-three in unison, that there's one God, but three persons. So, how would you prove the tri-unity from the Old Testament? Any thoughts? Go ahead. I heard. Okay, what's it say? Okay, we're going to go to that, actually, in about 15 minutes, but Barbara said, Genesis 2.26, let us make man in our image, so the word us and our. Um, What if they said to you, we believe that he's talking to one of the angels, (laughs) <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, please, to Genesis two, verse six. I want to talk about, if I if I can call it, the compound unity of God. I'm not sure that I follow what that is. No, I, <laughs> what is the compound unity of God? And I want to begin by looking at the plurality in the Shema. Um, the Shema is the first word in Hebrew in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, and it's the word you know. What is it? The word hear. Hear, O Israel. So it's called the Shema. And we look in the Shema, there's a plurality. So how would we prove the triunity? It's this thing called the compound, compound unity, and we'll explain that, that in a moment. Um, Genesis 6, verse 4, let me read that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, um, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the word Shema meaning hear, and Moses is calling upon the children of Israel to listen, um, that God is, is one. Now, cults and, and Jews, and I don't mean that I'm putting them in the same category, okay? But they'll look and say, you know, that there's, there's an issue with Christianity because they claim there's only one God. In reality, Jehovah's Witnesses will claim there are two and we'll get to, to that in a moment, but there's only one God, and we, we agree to that, that there, there is only one God. And, but we come, but they say that, that the Shema does not allow a, anything more than a monotheistic one God, which we would say amen to, but a compound unity. There is an ent- there is a plurality that's allowed, and we're going to look at, at it in at a moment, at one word, the word akkad here, um, Look at the word Genesis 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, what does it say? Is one. Is one. So, what did I say? Genesis, Genesis, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, yes. The Lord our God is one. This word one is a powerful, strong word that allows what we would call the triunity or the trinity. Because of its plurality. Here's what a compound, if I could explain it well. The last word that we're looking at in the Shema is the word Akad, or it's translated the word one. O-N-E. Okay? A compound unity noun. That's a noun, okay, which demonstrates oneness or unity. Um, there is more than a separate entity that's involved there. It contains several entities, but is referred to one. It's a compound unity. There is an allowance of a plurality within that oneness. And I'm going to prove that by looking at where the word Echad is used in other places in the Bible. Okay? So here is the Shema passage, one of the greatest verses in all of the Old Testament that will prove the Trinity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord... Our God. We're going to look at two proof texts. The word God, a little bit, because it's in the plural. And we're going to look at the word one. It's a compound um, compound noun, and it's allowing a plurality. Let's explain it by whether you want to turn there or I'll just talk it through. Genesis 1, verse 5. We're going to now look at where the word one, O-N-E, it's the Hebrew word Echad, E-C-H-A-D. We're looking at four or five places where it's used in the Old Testament because it is always a compound noun that allows plurality in the oneness, okay? It's used in Genesis 1 verse 5 when Moses is describing the first day of creation and it's the word translated one or the word first, Okay, that on the first day of creation there were what? How many parts on the first day were what? What does it say, someone? I don't have it open. Genesis 1, I'll read it. Genesis 1, verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning, the first. The word first is the word echad, okay? In the first day, there are two parts. What are they? Evening and morning, or if you want to call it day and darkness. So in the first day, one day, there's two parts to that one day. You follow me? Okay, let's look at another use in Genesis 2, verse 24. We have the famous marriage passage in Genesis two twenty four. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. It's that Hebrew word again, Akad. It's two, but they're becoming one. So God uses, when there is a plurality involved, but he wants to teach oneness, it's this special word that's used, ekad. Um You could turn there on Numbers 13, but I'm just going to reference it. In Numbers 13, when Moses is recording the account of the 12 spies, and they're sent to the land of Canaan, and they're coming back, and it says in verse 23, the word single. They had a single cluster of grapes. Okay, if they had a akkad. Cluster of grapes, there's one cluster, but how many grapes are there? There's a whole bunch, okay, so when there's defining a oneness, but there's a plurality in that oneness, right in um Ezra chapter two verse sixty four and I have five copies of all these notes that I put together on the Welcome Center, if, if you want you know to follow through a little bit later genesis two sixty four the words whole assembly. Um, is the Hebrew word Echad. And he's describing the whole assembly, and he numbers the whole assembly as 42,360. So there's one assembly, but there's a whole bunch of people in that oneness. So this special Hebrew word Ekkad allows a plurality. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I mean, there's, it's, it's one. But there is an allowance in that one of more than just one. There's, there's a separate Hebrew word that we'll look at in a moment that would mean just one, like here's, here's one cup. There's not a whole lot of cups in there, just one. That would be an entirely different Hebrew word that we'll look up in a moment. But here is akad, there's a plurality. And just one last one, Jeremiah 32, verses 38 and 39, when Jeremiah is speaking of that future day, and he references that God is going to give Israel one heart, one way. Akad is used twice. It's a whole group of people probably millions and millions they will have one heart and they will have one way it's the word akkad so it's a pretty dynamic word that's used to prove our theology that there is an equality there is a plurality in 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 the shema that's being allowed and just quickly to reference um with someone let's turn to genesis 22 verse verse 2 and then i'll just reference the others There's a separate Hebrew word that's used, and it's yakid, Y-A-C-H-I-D. That means absolute oneness. There's no plurality within that oneness. It's one. And it says in Genesis 22, verse 2, take your son, your only son. You see, Isaac only had one son. I mean, Abraham had one son, and that one son was Isaac. And it's also used in verses 12 and 16 that there was one son, and that's an entirely different Hebrew word. It is not our word in the Shema, Echad. It's not E-C-H-A-D. It's Yakid, Y-A-C-H-I-D, an entirely different word that's defining absolute oneness, no plurality within it. It's also used in Judges 11, verse 34, when Jephthah made this vow before God that whatever came out of his door, he would give to God. And it says, she was his only Yakid." only child. He had neither son nor daughter. So here it's talking about oneness, only child. There's not a plurality. It's an absolute oneness. I mean, isn't this kind of cool? I mean, to me, it, it explodes and over the years to use this with Jehovah's Witnesses and for them to, to just be able to see what the Word of God says, is, it's, it's powerful. One of my favorite meetings in Huntington Station, it was Ted and Tony Wallen came and uh, they sent their kids to our VBS. Ted was a Methodist. His wife was a Jehovah's Witness studying with JWs. And uh, he says, Dave, can you help me, my, my, my wife? It's just some of the weird stuff that's going on, which she's starting to believe. Um, he wasn't a Christian, um, but wanted me. So we started talking, and she kept saying, but the JW said this, but the JW said this, but the JW say this, but the JW say this. And so I said, listen, set up a meeting at your house. And let me just talk with Jehovah's Witnesses and you just listen. And you determine from the, the word of God and, and you just pray and ask who's right. And so Paul said, a friend of mine went, we went there and, and uh, we went back and forth like for two and a half hours. But just the word of God. And just to watch Tony's response, looking at her friend like this, her, I forget which side, but let's say she's to her right. She kept shaking her head and going back. And she, I mean, you know, at the end, she said, "No, you're wrong. I don't believe you're away. You're wrong." And so we escorted the Jehovah's Witnesses out and sat there. And a week or two later, they accepted Christ as their Savior. But the Word of God is just powerful, and, and its teaching and its truth. And this is just one example of, of how it's consistent. Um, turn with me to Exodus chapter twenty, verse, verses two and three. Also, there's another passage. Yahkid is using Zechariah twelve, ten. Um, and a lot of other places, but... Genesis... I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. I want to look at plurality in the name of God. We're familiar with the name of God as, as, as Elohim. Exodus 12, 20, verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt... Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. The translators help us in understanding the Hebrew word that's being used by taking the G from God and making it a capital G. And so whenever we see in our English translation "God," they're telling you that it's the Hebrew word Elohim, or the word El, El or Elohim. Okay, so that's the Hebrew word that's being used. And so when we understand Elohim is the plural, we don't translate it, not usually anyway. Uh, sometimes it is actually. Um, God's, but it can be God's, G-O-D, it's plurality. It's, it's kind of like more than one. And L is the word singular for God. Um, Elohim is used 2,500 times And the word L L E L is used 250 times in the Old Testament. What's what's God saying? By using the word Elohim, that there is a plurality that he wants to get across. In fact, right here in Exodus 20, verse 2, the word God is Elohim, and the word God's in verse 3 is Elohim. They're both Elohim, but they're not going to translate it and the Lord your gods said to you, because we understand that we have one God, but there's a plurality within that within the Godhead. So we look at even the name of God is a plural form used 2,500 times in the Old Testament. Elohim, the I am makes it plural, like um, books. It's, it's an S on the word. So it's communicating something very important as to who he is. Uh, we won't turn back there, but the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So here they're saying the Lord our Elohim plurality within the Godhead is Echad, is an absolute oneness. No, that's Yachid, is a compound unity, oneness. So the theology of the Old Testament screams forth that there is a God in a plural form, one God but a plurality, and that's laying the groundwork to when we then step in the New Testament. Who is Jesus Christ? But we begin with the Old Testament because that's where where God began. Turn back with me, if you would, please, to Genesis 1. I want to look at what Barbara was was referring to a moment ago. Plural pronouns. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said... Sorry. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Elohim is used again, and he's speaking that he's going to create man. So the question is, who, to whom is he speaking? Let us make man in our... So you have a, we have plural pronouns. And Jehovah's Witnesses will try to say that he's speaking to, to an angel. But it's kind of an, an easy answer to that. And we say, well, show me a verse in the Bible that says angels created. John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Jesus Christ is always the creator. God, I mean, angels aren't creating. Jesus Christ is creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who was this God? Who was our God? Well, it was, it was Christ and John and Colossians and Hebrews. So it's a peek at the Godhead speaking. Let us make man in our image. Are you ready for this? This to me is, is, is I just like, love. And, and I I love when God has given me opportunity with JWs. And the more recent one was down in Panama. And as we were running through the airport and Ray and me this guy was just, it was awesome conversation, quick conversation with him. But when you're able to share with them, do you also understand something more? I would say to them the word image and likeness, you ready for this? Is in the singular. That's pretty powerful. So it's not like we're talking, let us make something in our image. We're not going to say images, but you know, plural, but there's a oneness, a real intimate oneness. Let us make man in our this image and likeness is in the singular but ours is personal pronouns in the plural. That's screaming forth again, consistent with our theology that, that we serve one God and God des- designed it to have a manifestation of himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So we have plural pronouns. Um, again, oneness. Genesis 3:22 and 23. Um, Adam and Eve had sinned against God and God said, since man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Um, so again, the Godhead speaking in Genesis 11, it's seen as the Tower of Babel. Um, let us go down. Okay, let's put that all aside. So let's now. How do we how do we defend as we step into the the person of Jesus Christ? If they were to say, "Well, Jesus Christ was was created. He had a beginning um, somewhere in the past. He was created by God." And we'll look at next time one of the proof te- couple proof texts that they that they use. How it really is the context just destroys your argument in five seconds. Um, but what are verses that we would use to prove that, that Jesus Christ was preexistent? That Christ always existed? By the way, they'll say that Jesus Christ um, is Michael in the Old Testament. That Michael the archangel and Jesus Christ um, were the same. So what are verses that prove the preexistence of Christ? That he did not have a beginning. Any that you know. Okay, John 1.1. 1, 1. Go ahead. Okay, and we'll talk about that verse another time. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But they're going to argue on that one because they have an article before the last God, and they say, a God, small g, which, which is wrong. Okay, good. Amen. That's awesome. That's an awesome verse. And so is John one. 1. It's great too. What is it? John 8.58? Before Abraham was I am. Is that what you said? Isn't that John 8.58? Okay. All right, good. Any others? Let me just look at um, a couple as we we wrap up. We might only have time for one, Isaiah 9, 6, and and we'll pick it up on our next time, and I have some application before we run. Turn with me, please, Isaiah 9, verse 6. This is kind of proving that Christ pre-existed because it says everlasting Father, but I might get stuck on the mighty God part first. Um, Jehovah Witnesses believe that this verse is talking of Jesus Christ. They say, yes, it's speaking prophetically of Christ, but they say that that He is um, a mighty God, not the almighty God. They're making a distinction that Jesus Christ is... A mighty God, but Yahweh, Jehovah, is the Almighty God. Look at what it says in in nine six. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So I would, I've said to Joe Witnesses. So you're saying that the Mighty God is is not not Jesus Christ? I said, Well. Who is the Almighty God? Is Jesus is is um, Jehovah, and is Jehovah is worthy of worship? Yes, and but Jesus Christ, in essence, um, isn't because he's not the Almighty God. Hold on. So said so if you have a mighty God, so you have Jesus Christ as a mighty God, and you have Jehovah that's an Almighty God. So is Jesus Christ the true Almighty God? They'll say no. So then you you're they're forced to what conclusion that they have two gods. So, so if you have a mighty God and you have Yahweh that is an almighty God, then you either have two gods or you have Jesus Christ that's not the true God, a true God. So now you're ready, are you ready to call him a false God? So in a real pickle with that theology. Okay, we'll go, we'll come back to that in a moment. Go ahead, Ray. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they're, they, want to call, they want to make a distinction but there's a problem because then you have two gods or if they're both true gods then you have a polytheistic theology or you're going to have one God that's true and you have to call Jesus Christ false. But let me, let me keep following with this line of thinking with, with, with um, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, that the, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Matthew twenty-eight verse eighteen says that all authority and power is given to him under heaven and earth. That sounds like the very definition of almighty. But that being aside, would someone read Jeremiah thirty-two? No, let's stay right there in Isaiah, and then we'll turn to Jeremiah in closing. Um, Isaiah ten verses twenty verses twenty and twenty-one. If you would turn over. Isaiah 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. I said, who's, who's talked about there? And They'll say it's Jehovah. So Jehovah's called a mighty God, but over here in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus Christ is called a mighty God. Now it's getting, they're a little bit of a pickle. But we see that that Jesus Christ is called the mighty God, but also the everlasting Father, that he's the eternal one that has always existed. And then in closing, um, Jeremiah 32, verse 18. I say in closing, but if I can steal five more minutes. Jeremiah 32, verse 18. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of our of fathers to their children after them, O oh, great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts. So wow, this is where I camp on for a while. It's the same word El Gabor El God Gabor mighty. So God, El Gabor, is called Yahweh of hosts. And back here in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus Christ is called El Gabor. So you have Jesus Christ called Mighty God and you have Jehovah called Mighty God, Lord of hosts. And I say you put the two together and now you have Jesus Christ, the Mighty God, Lord of hosts, are equal. I mean, it just continues to support everything that we see. And we're, we're not out to win an argument. We just want to know this information so that we can share it with Jehovah's Witnesses when they knock on our door, with Witnesses that may be family members, people with whom that we may work to be able to sit down. Hey, can we just look at some, some, the, some of the Bible verses? And you look at Genesis 2.26. We look at some of these places. We turn to Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. The Word of God is supported our theology is supported in the Word of God. We don't support the Word of God. It supports us. Yes, sir? Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Someone already, or someone this Revelation 1 8? Yeah. Alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. Right?
1: Is that Revelation 1-8 you're
0: reading? Yes. Let me just... The Almighty. It's, it's um, a little challenging sometimes when you're going to... when they are looking at Greek and Hebrew. But still, that's an awesome verse. He's, the, he's called the Almighty. And just finishing the pre-existence, Micah 5-2, the one from everlasting... You know that as Christ is God is predicting His coming, the ancient from days that Christ is the eternal one. In Isaiah seven fourteen, He's called Emmanuel, God with us. We see in John eight fifty eight was referred to before Abraham was. I am John one. We'll get into John one, um, John eight, and Hebrews thirteen eight later. So, what do we do with all of this information? What thrills our soul? All that thrills my soul is Jesus. When I think about who is Christ, that's really what it comes down to. Who is Jesus Christ? Who who is our creator? I'm excited in June 17th. As I'm at the bottom of the Grand Canyon with four other guys from our church, and I've already put the devotions together for the first four days. And As we look around us and we speak of this great God, who is this God that's so powerful, that speaks such a thing into creation and the worldwide flood that ripped us all apart and to see what God has formed, that we could get to know such an awesome God that he's a plan for our lives a God that is so powerful, but he cares for us, and we look at these verses That who who is this Christ that came that we understand that he 's not such some i don 't mean to be irreverent some kid that was made, but he's the eternal God that has ever been. Do I understand it? If I said I understood the triunity, pastor. Jokes around and says, "When I look at you, I really like white straight straight coats or straight jackets, whatever." He says, "You'd have to put me in a in a straight jacket if I said I understood the triunity." I, that's okay that we don't completely get it that that God always existed, the triunity, but but it's supported in the scriptures and we accept that. And the Shema, "Hear is Israel, the Lord our God is one." There's an absolute oneness. There's a plurality in that oneness, but a member of that God had cared and loved us enough to came down to this earth and died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we can know him. And we, we quote John fifteen sixteen. it's appointed unto us. You know, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you to do what? That you should go and bear fruit. That we should go, we should be on mission. We're going to bear fruit. Our fruit's going to remain to the glory of God, whatever we ask of the Father. But we're on a mission to, as we're appointed of God, to go and bear fruit for his glory. Well, why wouldn't we want to? He died for me. I belong to him. He gave his life for me. The, the creator, the universe, did all of that. The eternal one, the one that's always existed. The great I am. The almighty, the mighty God. What an awesome privilege we have. Position, position, position. Keep speaking the gospel to our lives and it changes us. God, we love you. We thank you for, for Christ, our Savior. God, our hearts ache over people that are, are, are nice people, that are driven people, these that don't have the truth and they knock on doors dozens of hours a week. And we that have the truth, God, I, I stand embarrassed sometimes when, when I compare myself to their fervor. God, we love you and we pray that we will be on mission every day for you and that we will build relationships with the loss with our neighbors, with our with work associates, with one goal that we would have their trust and friendship that we could share with them how we, a beggar, found bread, the living bread. In Christ's name I pray, amen.